We are continuing our journey through 1 Thessalonians. I invite you to turn there to chapter 4 this morning, beginning at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. There's a little word that I want you to notice each time it's used in this passage. It's the preposition with, with. Let us give our reverent attention to God's holy word. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And then in the fifth chapter at verse 10. 510. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. May God bless this his word to us. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We all know what it's like to suddenly take an interest in something that previously did not interest us, simply because we now have a personal connection to that something. Uh, This is true in many different areas of our lives. How many of you watched the Preakness yesterday? How many of you even know what the Preakness is? Uh, How many of you know that I'll have another one, the second jewel in the triple crown at the Preakness and uh, goes on to race in a few days at uh, Belmont, I believe it is. Is that right? Yeah, Belmont to complete the uh, triple crown. The first time since, what, 1971, 78, something, something like that. Uh, So you don't know much about the Preakness, do you? And uh, I'll have another. But uh, I bet you'd know a great deal about it if uh, you had, say, $1,000 down on that horse. (laughs) Or any horse in in that race. Suddenly, the Preakness would not just be another horse race back east uh, somewhere, but you would have a personal and definite interest in it if you had $1,000 bet on one of those uh, horses. Uh, what uh, previously held no interest at all for you would have some interest because of that personal connection. 
Uh, this is true in the area of health as well. We show little interest in a particular disease or condition, but let a diagnosis be made for us or for someone close to us, and suddenly we learn not only how to pronounce the name of the disease, but we learn the pros and cons of different treatments and, and remedies. We understand the prognosis and uh, what might uh, ensue. Or take an example from the world of finance. Those stock listings in, in the newspaper are just gray areas in the newspaper, sheet after sheet of tiny little type. Or are there that line of symbols and numbers that crawls across the bottom of your TV screen? They're just visual clutter, unless uh, you happen to buy some stock. And then, where there was no interest, now there's great interest. You see, it's that personal connection that makes what was once uninteresting now interesting. I guarantee you that you will be interested in today's teaching because its subject is something to which you have a very personal connection. There's not a single one of us who has not been touched by it. People close to us have experienced it, and we will all one day meet it for ourselves. And that subject is death. The ultimate statistic is this. One out of one dies. The death rate has been remarkably consistent through all of human history. 100%. Give or take a person or two that we'll talk about later. We have experienced death, the death of others, and unless the Lord returns in the next hundred years or so, every one of us here will someday die. Personal connection has a way of making us interested in what previously did not interest us. In this latter part of his first letter to them, Paul is addressing an issue of great concern to the Thessalonian Christians. We must always remember that what we have in the New Testament are not theological lessons or lectures. They are letters. They are written out of and into the life situations of people, real people. Paul did not have to sit down one day and wonder what in the world he was going to write to those Thessalonians. When he wrote to them, the topics, the subjects of his letters arose out of his knowledge of them and what they were experiencing. It arose out of his desire to be God's instrument for helping them in their real-life situations. And they were interested in death. And their interest was no casual, speculative kind of thing. It was an important issue. It was clearly a life and death issue for them. They apparently were asking about followers of Christ who had died and what their standing would be in the second coming of Jesus. And they worried. They were worried about their friends and their loved ones. And they wondered if the death of those friends and loved ones would somehow place them at a disadvantage when the Lord returned. And that's the practical concern that Paul had when he wrote to them. 
That's what he wanted to address. That's the question he wanted to answer. What about those who have fallen asleep in Christ? That is, what about those who have died as believers in Jesus? When Christ comes to be with his followers, what about those who have already died believing in him? And Paul's answer in this passage is wonderfully simple. In that moment of Christ's coming, they will not be at any disadvantage whatsoever. They, too, will share in the grace and the glory of the second coming when Jesus comes with and for those who in this life place their confidence, their trust in him. There are three great truths that I want you to catch out of this text. And I'm indebted to Michael Holmes, who's a professor of biblical studies at our own Converge School, Bethel University, author of a commentary on 1 Thessalonians for, for these three main points. First, the future for believers is not merely a place, but a relationship. There is much speculation about heaven because we want to fill in all the details. What's it like, this place where people go, where the children of God go? But the emphasis in Scripture isn't so much on the place, it is on the relationships. And notice how that's borne out in today's text. The preposition with followed by references to Jesus. First, verse 14 of chapter 4. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then three verses later in verse 17. So we will be with the Lord forever. And in chapter 5, verse 10, that ringing affirmation, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that means living or dead, we may live together with him. The significant thing, you see, clearly, is our position with Jesus. That relationship is what matters, a relationship that not even death can break. That famous passage, in my father's house are many mansions, or in my father's homes are many rooms. Though we remember it as about, and we think about it as dealing with place, is actually, upon re-examination, really about relationship with him. In the last week of his earthly ministry, the week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, Jesus had been talking with his, his disciples about his coming death, the fact that he was going away from them. And that kind of talk made them anxious because it held for them the anxiety of separation. And so Jesus, in that context, said that to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You see, the reason for the place, the point of the place is that it is where Jesus is. I will come back and take you to be with me. It is the fellowship of Jesus, the free, unmediated, immediate relationship with our Savior, the one who loves us and gave himself for us that makes heaven heaven. 
pearly gates and streets of gold are secondary to the relationship. Elsewhere, it is affirmed in Scripture that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul spoke of his own death as departing to be with the Lord. And so the ultimate fate of all believers, regardless of when or if they die, is to be with the Lord forever. That's the central point of this passage. Secondly, for Christ's followers, death is not an end, but a transition. In the Roman Empire, death was viewed as a sleep from which there would be no awakening. One of their poets summarized their hopelessness this way, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is an unending night to be slept through. No wonder Paul characterized those without Christ as the rest who have no hope. Death was the end, the final reality of human existence. And Paul's concern was that the Thessalonian Christians would not buy into that prevailing view, that they would distinguish themselves from the hopeless, that in, in encountering death, they would factor in the great fact of Christ's resurrection and see it as the guarantee of the resurrection of all who trust Jesus. The future historical fact of our resurrection is grounded in the past historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. We share in the resurrection of Jesus. We are inseparably bound with Christ, and death is not the end for us any more than it was the end for him we share in the resurrection. And as Paul develops that point elsewhere, resurrection to be with the Lord forever includes the acquisition of a transformed resurrection body that is glorious and imperishable. It includes the enjoyment of a relationship with Christ that is closer and richer and fuller than the relationship that we currently experience. Paul considered it to be better by far. That's his words, better by far. This life, you see, is only a foretaste of the life that lies ahead. And so when we grieve, as we do for fellow believers, we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. In view of God's resurrection of Jesus, the death of the believer must be viewed not as an end to life, but as a transition to an even better experience of life. On that flyer in the folder this morning, I've uh, printed the words of Martin Luther King Jr. spoken at the funeral for those four little black girls who were killed in 1963 by a racist bomb in Birmingham, Alabama. Read that. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise, be your sustaining power through these trying days. Doesn't that speak to you? It does to me. Because we in this congregation called NOVA 
this church family have experienced death. More than our share, it seems, of grief. And we continue to sorrow. We walk together and we work through our grief. And sustaining us, supporting us in these losses is the knowledge that death is not the end of life for the follower of Christ, but it's a transition to a life that is better by far. And then lastly, the third great affirmation of this text, what we know and believe about the future should shape the present. It ought to. What we know about the future ought to shape the present. Grief, though present and very real, is transformed from hopeless to hopeful. We still grieve, but we grieve differently. We grieve with the anticipation of reunion, of being with Jesus and with those who have gone before. The therefores in Scripture are very important. They announce the so what's. When you find the word therefore, you should say to yourself, okay, here's the point. Here it comes. There are two therefores that I call your attention to this morning. At the very end of chapter 4, therefore, encourage one another. And then verse 11 of chapter 5, the same thing. Therefore, encourage one another. That first therefore follows the answer to the question, that they'd been asking about their Christian friends and loved ones. What about them in relationship to Christ's return? Having died, will they miss out? And the answer is no. And then the therefore, the second therefore, follows the answer to the question they had about themselves. In that great day of the Lord, that coming day when Jesus will judge and punish evildoers, when God's righteous anger, his wrath, which he now holds back because of his mercy to give men and women time to repent, when that great wrath is unleashed, what of Christians in that day? What of Christ followers? And Paul's answer is, and Dave will have more to say about this next week. I don't want to steal all Pastor Dave's thunder. But the answer to that question is, you're children of light, not darkness. That day, that coming day, is the day of your salvation. And should you live to see that day, should Christ return during your lifetime, that is your salvation. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so your in Christ loved ones are safe in Christ. Death for them has not severed the bond between them and their Savior. Therefore, encourage one another. And you yourselves are not headed for wrath, but you have an appointment with Christ to receive salvation in all its fullness. Therefore, encourage one another. So you see the flow of this passage. When Jesus returns, what about those Christians who have died? Well, their future can be summed up in two words, with him. And what about those who may be alive at his return? 
in that day that comes unexpectedly to the unbeliever, but should be no surprise to the Christian who is alert and awake and watching. The answer is our future is the same as theirs. Two words, with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up.